Hello everyone. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Revelation Church if it's your first time here. Um, it's really, really great to have you and welcome if you've been coming for years as well. Um, it's really, really good to be here and I noticed that I'm either prototype for the new seating arrangement. I like it. I feel closer to people, um, not miles back. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you can... Start opening ahead already in Ephesians 4, that's where we're going to be. We've been doing a, a, a teaching series on a book in the New Testament called Ephesians, which was written by an early church leader called Paul. And um, we've been going for a last, the last few months through it. It's probably one of the longest series we've done at Rev, but it's a really dense book. So it's the kind of thing you can't really, it, it's hard to digest the whole thing in one go. So it's worth taking a lot of time through it. And um, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at various things that Christians should and shouldn't do. So we've been looking at various things that are right for Christians to be doing, various things that are wrong for Christians to be doing. So Paul says, you shouldn't do this, and you should do this kind of stuff. Which, for those of you who aren't brought up in a church setting, might be sitting there thinking, that sounds completely normal, that sounds exactly what I'd expect a Christian letter to be about. But actually, for those of you who have been brought up in a church setting, the, the way of phrasing it like that by saying, we've been looking at what Christians should and shouldn't do, might shock you slightly, because you might be thinking, wait a minute, the whole point, isn't it? Isn't it the whole point that Jesus has done everything and we don't then do anything after? Um, and there is a sense in which that, that is true. Jesus has done everything. And as we'll see throughout, the, throughout this sermon, Jesus having done everything on our behalf is the only way we can actually live in that way. But there is actually a point in the letter that we get to where Paul starts saying, you should live in this way and you shouldn't live in that way. But the way he does it is really interesting. Paul doesn't write a letter and say, dear church in Ephesus, I've heard you've been doing some really bad stuff, which isn't really good. I'd like you to stop doing that stuff. I want you to start being kind to each other and not be nasty. I want you to tell the truth to each other. I want you to make sure that you pray quite a lot. And I want you to make sure that you're generous and kind. Oh, and by the way, can you say hello to Deirdre for me, please? Lots of love, Paul. That's not the way it works. Paul doesn't write a letter like that. Not to mention the fact that the name Deirdre wouldn't have existed at the time. But he writes by basically the first... We're in chapter 4. And chapter 4, there's six chapters in here, the first three chapters, Paul hasn't got to the point where he says, this is what you should do. He spent three whole chapters saying, this is what God has done. He says in chapter 1, God has blessed you with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's adopted you. He's chosen you. He's forgiven you. He's redeemed you. He then, he then says, I, and I'm, I'm praying as your kind of church leader, I'm praying that you get it, that you see it, and you understand the hope that you've been called to. And then in chapter 2, he starts saying, let's put it another way, you were dead in your sins. You were, you, you were dead. You couldn't do anything. And God took you when you were dead in your sins, raised you up, seated you with Christ in the heavenly places so that he might show you how kind he is in the coming ages. Oh, and by the way, there's another thing he's done, is he's taken this group of people called the Jews who in the Old Testament were God's chosen people, and he's taken these people who weren't Jewish, who weren't God's chosen people, and he's brought them together and made one new humanity in Christ. Oh, and to add on top of that, this new humanity is the way that God's going to demonstrate to angels and powers that he is incredibly wise. And I want you guys to see that. And I'm bowing my knee before the Father every day and I'm praying that you guys get it. Therefore, Paul then writes a load of stuff that Christians should do and shouldn't. It's very different, isn't it? If someone's done a load of stuff for you, you suddenly feel a lot more motivated to actually act in line with that. So bearing that in mind, we're going to read verses in chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. We're going to focus on verses 30 to 32, but I thought I'd just reread through that so we get a good chunk of scripture. Um, so in light of all of this, therefore... 
Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather, let him do labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's a list amongst some other stuff that Paul says Christians should do and Christians shouldn't do in light of what's happened in the gospel. We've got to remember it's always in light of what's happened in the gospel. Paul never says, do this and then God will love you. He says, God loves you, therefore do this. And he lists all those things. And we're going to focus on verses 30 to 32. It's just a few things that we're going to look at, but it's a lot of very profound stuff, as generally happens in Ephesians. It's, it's, I've heard someone refer to some stuff before as espresso theology. So it's very small, but it's very, very dense and very powerful and that's really what you get in this book so you you could spend hours and hours on three verses which I won't do you will be glad to know Um, but there's enough to fill books and books here so we're talking today about the title of the talk is don't sadden the holy spirit of god Paul tells us he's told us all these different things we should and shouldn't do and then he says in verse 30 do not grieve or don't make the holy spirit sad which I mean, it, can, it can sound a little bit strange, you think about it. You, it's kind of this bit of a Christian cliche. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may have heard that verse, and say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But there's sometimes something in the back of mind that, our mind that thinks, that sounds like a bit of a weird thing to say. And part of the reason is, I think we very often think as the ho- of the Holy Spirit as a thing, or as a substance, or as a power. That we, we believe that um, the, the gifts of the Spirit and the miraculous are still for today and that's still stuff God wants to do. We can very often have a tendency, even if we don't articulate it in that way, to think of the Holy Spirit as fuel or power or a thing rather than a person. And the idea of grieving or saddening a thing is weird. So you wouldn't, I don't know, you wouldn't go home, turn the electricity on and hear the sound of crying. That's not something you'd expect. But actually the Holy Spirit's a person and has emotions. So actually the idea of grieving a person or saddening a person is actually completely normal. Because the way you act with people has a huge effect on how that person feels. So we must remember that when we read about don't grieve or don't make the Holy Spirit sad, we're reading about a person who lives with us. We're not reading about a, a power that just kind of flows through our body, which is often, like I said, we, don't, we won't articulate it like that, but it's a very, very easy to think of it in that way. The Holy Spirit's a person. And so actually as a person who has emotions and can be grieved and, or, and also be delighted in various things. And we're going to look at, a, I suppose, a, a few things today that might sadden the Holy Spirit and a few things that will actually delight the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, what, but first of all, let's just dig a little bit deeper into this, this whole kind of grieving or saddening the Holy Spirit. The potential for saddening someone is greater the deeper the relationship you have with them. So, if I... If I have never met you before and I insult you, you may feel offended, but you're probably not going to... You'll probably just brush it off. Just like, oh, that guy was an idiot, but I'll just brush it off. If I insult my wife, Bex, that's going to have far more serious repercussions. She is going to feel far more saddened if I insult her than if a random stranger on the street insults her. That's just the way it works. The potential for grieving and for delighting someone is 
basically, it's, it's kind of directly proportional to how well you know them and how deep a relationship you have with them. Actually, the Holy Spirit has the deepest possible relationship with you that you could ever have. Because the Bible says he lives inside of us and lives amongst us as a church. Which means our relationship with the Holy Spirit is far deeper, far more profound, far more intimate than any human relationship we could have. Which means actually the potential for grieving and saddening the Holy Spirit is far higher than the potential, even I suppose, for grieving and saddening your wife. But also the other way around, is far, you have far more potential for delighting and making the Holy Spirit full of joy and happiness in what you're doing. So it's really important to realise that. This isn't, we're not just talking about God kind of sitting in the sky removed and then seeing the stuff we do and just going, that, that makes me sad or that makes me happy. We're talking about someone who is intimately involved in our lives and therefore who has a depth of relationship with us, which means that what we do has a very strong implication on how... It, which sounds weird, doesn't it? Say how God feels. But actually, there's, there's, we, we can think of that and think, isn't that just projecting emotions onto God? Isn't that just taking human emotions and projecting them onto God? Well, actually, the Bible tells us that we're made in his image. And so actually, human emotion is actually a reflection of divine emotion. For us, it's kind of, in a sense, it's distorted. So our anger is, n- is generally not r- as righteous as God's anger. But actually, the fact that we can get angry at injustice is actually a reflection of God. And so the fact that we can get sad at stuff that is evil and wrong is a reflection of the fact that God gets sad at stuff that is evil and wrong. The fact that we delight in what's good is a reflection of God delighting in what is good and evil. So actually far from projecting human emotions onto God, we're actually recognising that we have emotions in and of ourselves that reflect what God is like. And it's really important to understand that because otherwise you, just, you can end up with this, this idea that we're just kind of using metaphors to describe God. God has, God has a very complex, profound emotional life and the potential that we have to actually affect that is actually huge and significant. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and lives amongst us, which means actually things we do when we live in line with the gospel will delight the Holy Spirit. When we live out of line with the gospel, in the same way that if you wrong your your spouse or if you wrong one of your best friends, that will sadden them. And the same is true with the Holy Spirit. But also the Holy Spirit lives amongst us, which means this isn't just an, an individual thing. It's not just we as individuals have the power of grieving the Holy Spirit or not grieving the Holy Spirit or re- delighting the Holy Spirit. Actually, as a church, the actions that we do as a group of people and as a community actually affect, affect the way God feels. Um, and we're going to look at some stuff today that would, that would help us understand what, what does that what would that look like? What would it look like to grieve the Holy Spirit? What would it look like to delight the Holy Spirit? Um, does that make sense? So God has a deep, profound, complex emotional life, and we actually reflect in a certain way that emotional life, rather than us projecting that onto him. Which means it's, it's a different way of thinking of sin, isn't it? You think of sin, and very often you can think of a remote, distant judge saying, that's right, that's wrong. But actually, when you wrong a friend, you realise that's, that's, that's not all it is. There's a, your friend knows what's right and wrong morally, There's some kind of code set there, but actually grieving a friend is not quite the same as wronging a judge who is completely detached and has no emotional attachment to you. So sin actually saddens God right to the heart, and it's not just some detached judge somewhere off in the distance. And it's really important to understand that Christianity is a relational, re- a relational thing. It's it's not about a, a far distant God. And we look at a few things in a minute that Paul says would grieve the Holy Spirit and wouldn't. But we've also told something else about the Holy Spirit. So in verse, uh, in verse 30, still, we're told that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. 
Now again, we've got an idea which, we, we know what sealing, sealing means, we've got this kind of, if you think of a seal, you might think of a bath, right? Obviously, okay, you can think of the animal, we're not talking about the animal here. But if you think, you think of like a bath seal, for example, you think, okay, well we'll put some seal around the bath. But actually, seals are not, in the way that it's meant here, is not something we tend to use that much nowadays. So, whereas... When Paul wrote this letter, everyone would read this and go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, a seal. They weren't thinking the stuff around the side of the bath or stuff around the side of the sink. They were actually thinking something like, if we could look at the next slide, this is my geeky archaeological side coming out. There we go. That is a, that's a handle that used to be on a, on a jar that used to belong to a king of Israel. So we're talking ancient Israel, and that thing in the middle is called a seal. And for those of you who can read that old language um, that says to the king I can't read that by the way that's just like, I could have pretended I could and then that, you'd have thought oh that's so cool um, or geeky um, it says to the king a seal is a way of saying this belongs to the king and that's what the Holy Spirit it, the Holy Spirit kind of it, the, the image is that when you become a Christian you get baptised into Christ you repent of your sins the Holy Spirit is given to you and it's like God saying a bit like a stamp it's kind of like stamp on the forehead saying belonging to God yeah. to the King You're, you have to the King written like the actually Revelation 13 uses that imagery of having a, a kind of a, a seal or a stamp on your forehead that says you belong to this person you belong to that person we have to the King kind of metaphorically speaking, written all over us. And when you turn to Christ, that happens. And we're sealed, Paul says, for the day of redemption. So, what happens? God seals us in the present. says, I put my stamp on you. You belong to me. You belong to the king. The purpose of that seal is that in however many, in 100,000, whatever year's time, when Christ returns and all things are renewed, the day of redemption, redemption in the Bible has the, is the idea of setting people free. So to redeem a slave is to set a slave free. And God says there's a day when creation is going to be set free from futility. And on that day, the image is that God kind of, I suppose, is sitting on his throne of judgment and looks around and can recognise the people who are his. Because they're all the ones with to the king printed on their forehead. Because the, it's that image of the Holy Spirit being given to us is a way of saying, these people are set apart as my possession. The seal says, this person belongs to God. But it doesn't work exactly in the same way as a label would. So you, we have labels, so I suppose that might be the closest thing to a seal that we might have. You've, you've got books or something that you don't particularly want people to nick, you put a label on it and they re- realise it belongs to you. But labels are quite flimsy and labels as a story that I'm going to share, we often lose the things that we have labels on. So I had an old flatmate called Dave Smith, some of you will remember him, he used to come to Rev, and he had a book that belonged to a guy called Mick Taylor, and it had a sticker on the inside that said, I think, MJT, which is his, his initials, and he just had it on his bookshelf, he borrowed it a few years before, and I remember listening to a seminar, Mick Taylor was a, a pastor in another church, I remember listening to a seminar that Mick was speaking at, and he said, I've got a few books to recommend on this to- topic, there's this one, there's this one, oh, and then there's this, this one called God's Big Story by, by, uh, by a guy called Greenslade, and I don't know where I've put it though, I think someone borrowed it one day, and I'm listening to this seminar where he's speaking to hundreds of church leaders thinking, that's my flatmate, my flatmate has got this person's book, and you kind of like, he's put his stamp on the book, but he's suddenly in the middle of this seminar going, I don't really know where I, I'll lend that to someone one day, I don't know where I put it, 
We think labels are quite a flimsy thing. There is not a seminar going on in heaven where God's sitting around explaining to his angels, there was this person called Dan, and I lent him to someone, and I can't remember who I lent him to. If you had this jar, which was a whole jar, in your house, and you didn't belong to the royal household, you would be in fear of your life. That thing belongs to the king. You do not. That does not go missing. The same way you're stamped with the Holy Spirit, you don't go missing. God doesn't just lend us to people and then a few years later think, where did I put that person? A seal protects. It's a, it's, I suppose a bit like a kind of, it's more of an insurance document than just a label. It's saying this belongs to this person and woe betide you if you get in the way and you nick it. That's what God does with his Holy Spirit when he seals us. He fills us with the Spirit when we become Christians, when we're baptised into to Christ and sets us apart and says there's a day coming where you are going to be redeemed and set free because I've given you a guarantee of that by giving you my Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're kept safe until Christ returns. So Paul tells us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit because you have been given, in a sense you've been given the label belonging to the King. And I don't want you, in the way you act, to grieve the person to whom you belong. Yeah, does that, that make sense? So Paul's, Paul's not just saying, don't grieve this distant person. He's saying, grie- don't grieve the person who is in the closest possible relationship to you and to whom you actually belong. You belong to God, so don't sadden, don't make his Holy Spirit sad by the way you live. So I suppose the question is, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, if you think about it, the Holy Spirit... Clues, part of the clues in the name, the Holy Spirit would suggest that anything that is unholy would be out of line with his character. Which means actually unholiness, a lot of the stuff that Paul's been talking about, you could kind of subsume under the general category of unholiness. So lack of, lack of being like God, essentially, is the kind of thing that grieves the Holy Spirit. So just unrighteousness, living in a way that actually doesn't reflect the holiness of God, is out of line with who the Holy Spirit is. Untruthfulness would be that. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Which means if you are sealed with the Spirit of Truth and you go around lying, that is living out of line with who he is. So essentially, living out of line with the gospel, as a kind of overarching general thing, will grieve the Holy Spirit. So by saying this, Paul is saying, all of the stuff I've been listing, anger, malice, telling lies to each other, like living, later on, living in sexual immorality, if that's the way you live, actually that grieves the Holy Spirit. But in this specific context, actually, you look at what's going on in chapter 4. The real thing that Paul seems to be getting at in this specific context is actually lack of unity grieves the Holy Spirit. Lack of togetherness in the church and in the body of Christ profoundly saddens the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit has given you. The Holy Spirit, by being poured out on the church, has brought people together from completely different backgrounds. Remember we looked at that a few months ago, where people from completely different backgrounds who were at enmity with each other have been brought together by the blood of Christ, and the Holy Spirit seals that and says, I'm bringing these people together. And therefore, actually, things that separate between people in the church make the Spirit sad. Anytime you have a disagreement between believers where they part away from each other and harbour feelings of bitterness is not just bad on a human level, it actually saddens God to the very heart. Because he's put his Holy Spirit in us and the Spirit has created unity. And we actually have a duty, in light of the Gospel, to maintain that unity. 
So we don't create it. So it's a bit like you're, you're given a fire. You haven't, like, someone else creates the fire and he says, you maintain this, you keep it, whilst I just go away, on a, go away and get something. You haven't created that fire, but you have the possibility of doing a few things with that fire. You could either keep adding fuel to it, or you could go and grab a bucket of water and chuck it over. In the one case, you're not maintaining the fire. In the other case, if you're adding stuff that's going to help, you are maintaining that. And in the same way, we are to do things helped by the Holy Spirit to maintain the unity and the togetherness that the Holy Spirit has brought in the church. So if you look in verse 31, we've basically got a few things in verse 31 that Paul says, these things are things that you should put away. And in verse 32, these are a few things that you should do, actually. And what you'll notice is all of them, pretty much, are the kind of things that either destroy or build unity. So, we're not going to go through them one by one, because I don't think the point, necessarily, when Paul's writing, is for people to think very, very, very carefully about every single one. I think he's making a general blank statement. But let's, if, Asia, do you mind just coming up quickly? Let's just, if we just think about this, Asia and I are, we're, we're united, we're brothers in Christ. If Asia wrongs me, which happens, we will wrong each other at some point in our lives, because we are human beings, I have a response. I can either do this stuff in verse 31. I can be like, Asia's just told me I have a big nose. I can either be bitter about that, start kind of fuming on the inside, which will then overflow and lead into wrath and anger and clamour and slander and malice, and I just start thinking, I, I hate this guy, I, I don't like him. I start separating and putting up barriers between us. As I do that, unity is broken, and the Holy Spirit is saddened by that. Because he's saying, part of, the, part of the reason I was poured out is actually to bring unity. However... If I end up saying, actually, you know what, rather than responding with bitterness and malice, I'm going to take hold of the message of the gospel and remember that God was kind to me, that God was tender-hearted to me and God forgave me and I'm going to act in that way, that will actually bring unity between us. So actions that we do have the potential of creating disunity. And the way we respond to those actions and the way we react and act towards each other have the potential of, of basically maintaining unity or of creating disunity. And Paul's saying, please, please act in such a way that you're creating and maintaining unity rather than creating disunity. Thank you. Very, kind of, I suppose, simple illustration. But that, that's what's going on in those verses. Paul's saying, don't do the things that will create disunity between you. Do the kind of things that will actually maintain the unity that God has given through his Holy Spirit. And if we look at just the things that he lists, particularly in verse 32... At verse 31, there's a few things that we've already mentioned. Like, so Steph talked about anger and do not sin in your anger and the fact that actually there is a, right, a place for righteous anger. But actually, when anger is kept going and becomes bitterness and wrath and just wrong kind of anger, Paul's saying, don't do that. That separates people rather than uniting people. But if we look at the stuff in, the verse, th- in verse 32, these are essentially things that God does in the gospel. God was kind to us in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, in the same letter, verses 6 to 7, it says, God raised us up, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might demonstrate his kindness towards us. Kindness, essentially doing nice, good things to us, is exactly what God does in the gospel. It's tender-hearted, compassionate, essentially. You can't get a more compassionate or tender-hearted person than God. You want, to, you want to see what God's like, you look at Jesus, you read about Jesus in the Gospels. He has, um, he has just found out that his cousin has been beheaded and goes away to be on his own, and a crowd follow him, and rather than responding by saying, I don't want to see you, my cousin's just died, he says he was compassionate and started teaching them. Wow. You get 
utter, absolute compassion in God. And Paul's saying, be imitators of God, essentially. Act the way that God has acted towards you. But I think probably the most challenging one when you really think about it here is that's the almost, it can sound a bit like a throwaway line, but when you think about it, it's probably one of the most challenging statements you can make. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Think about what it cost God to forgive us. Think about the, the, what God had to go through in order to provide forgiveness to us. Because for, forgiveness is a costly thing. Forgiveness isn't saying, oh, it's fine, it do- doesn't matter. Forgiveness is saying, what you did really hurt me. But I'm going to let that go. And actually, the word Paul uses here is the idea of giving a gift. Which means it's not just, I'll let it go, whatever. You're saying, actually, though you hurt me really badly, I am going to forgive, I'm not going to hold on to that, and I'm actually going to be reconciled to you in Christ. Which is intensely, uh, intensely difficult teaching. But actually, when, if, the reason Paul says that, forgive one another, is he says, forgive one another as God has forgiven you. There is nothing that anyone has ever done to anyone else in the history of humanity that can compare to what we have done, the human race and we as individuals have done to God by betraying him and turning away from him. Yet he forgave us at the cost of his only son. Which means Paul is actually standing on very good ground saying you can forgive one another because God has forgiven you in the gospel. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it means that we do actually have a command because of what God has done with us to forgive one another. And it may well actually be that there are some of us here today who... Um, we might not say realise that actually there is unforgiveness. We might just, it, what might have happened is someone has wronged us and we kind of just drifted away from them. And just, I just don't want to talk to them anymore. And actually, and I suppose another form it might take is actually constantly reminding someone of what they've done. You know, not in a nasty way of being like, by the way, do you remember that thing you did a few years ago which was really nasty? But just almost in a jokey way, reminding them of things they've done kind of means you haven't actually forgiven them because you haven't actually let go of that. And actually, I'd exhort you, I suppose God would exhort you, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Don't grieve the Spirit through disunity in the church. God rejoices when people are together and there's fellowship and love and unity in the church and it grieves him to the core when he sees people who are living with lack of forgiveness. And so I suppose an exhortation to you, to uh, to those of us who are in that situation today, is please forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And it may well be that actually it's appropriate, as we take bread and wine, to actually go and find the person who has wronged you. And like, if, if, it's the right, if, it's, if it's wise, obviously, like, use wisdom, there are situations where it's probably not the best thing to just to do in a kind of noisy setting. But it may well be that there are certain situations where someone has wronged you and you realise, I have let bitterness grow in my life and I want to go and be reconciled with that person. And bread and wine is a great place to do that because actually you're proclaiming, by taking the bread and the wine, you are actually proclaiming the unity of the church. That's part of what communion is about. The clue's in the name, communion. We come together, we eat from the bread loaf. So it may well be that that's not particularly the wise thing to do in your situation, but it may well be that there are people here today where you think, I want to get right with that person, and actually I think it's an appropriate thing to do it over over bread and wine. But I say, whatever, this, whatever the case, whether that's right to do now or not, please, please forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And what that will do is it will not sadden the Holy Spirit, it will delight the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit look, will look at that, 
and he will see a reflection of the gospel in what you've done. And heaven loves the gospel. Heaven sings of the gospel for whole eternity. If you read the book of Revelation, they're constantly singing about Jesus' act of forgiveness on the cross. And as you forgive one another, you are proclaiming the gospel in the way that you act. And so I just encourage you to do that. And for those of you who are here and you just... You don't particularly know where you're at necessarily. You wouldn't call yourself a believer. You might not have... This might be your first time in church. Forgiveness is at the core of the Christian message. The Christian message is that God forgave us when we did not deserve forgiveness. That God sent his son to die so that we could be forgiven of our rebellion against him. And so I'd encourage you, if if that's your position, please look into this message of reconciliation and forgiveness more. Please don't just let it brush by. You can chat to the person who bought you if you want to find out more. But I'd encourage you, please would you look into the, the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus, that while we were sinners, Christ... Christ died for us and God forgave us. And what we're going to do is we're going to respond to this. We're going to respond in a way that is actually going to delight the Holy Spirit. Because we're going to come together and we're going to praise God, which always delights the Holy Spirit. And we're going to take bread and wine together, which actually really delights the Holy Spirit because it is a proclamation of the unity and the togetherness of the church. And so we're going to respond by doing that. And so if the band would like to come up, um, and if you guys would like to stand, we're going to praise God together, we're going to worship him, and we are going to, through what we do, we are going to delight the Holy Spirit of God. And so, Father, we pray... We pray that you would help us to see the gospel so clearly, Lord God. We thank you for this amazing message that Paul preaches to the, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then says, because of what God has done, can you live in this way? And we thank you that everything we do, Lord God, is not just, it's not just arbitrary. It's actually a reflection of what you've done for us on a much, much, much deeper level. Lord God, and we just pray. Father, I pray for people who are here today and, you, and, and are thinking, I find the idea of forgiving that person and being reconciled to them so difficult. Father, I pray you would help them by your Spirit. We thank you, Father, that we're not just sealed with the Spirit. It's not just that we're kept safe by the Spirit. We're transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would transform us more and more as we look to you and as we look at you and what you've done for us. And as we sing to you, I pray that we would delight you as we proclaim the unity and the togetherness of the church. As we take communion and remember the the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray you'd be with us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.